Love is one of those, the few issues that theoretically everyone is in favor of. Christians, non-Christians, Democrat, Republican, it doesn't matter who you are. For the most part, you don't hear or see or hear of people who are voting against love. Say, no, I'm not for that. Generally, we all believe love is essential, that it's important to who we are, that it's important that we experience it and we share it. Sometimes we even hear those outside the church calling the church to be more loving as if they they know somehow that this is who the church is, that this is what the church is called to be and do, but they don't think the church is doing a good job of it. But one thing that becomes pretty clear in some of the public conversations, and then especially when you watch movies that are, are, are about romance and love, is that we tend to talk past each other when we talk about love. And that many of us are working from different definitions. That we're not all saying the same thing. So some would describe love, describe love as a powerful, overwhelming emotion. And some would describe it simply as an ongoing commitment. Others might describe it as a form of acceptance and affirmation. Does Christianity have anything distinctive to offer when it comes to love? Does being a Christian help you love better? Should you be able to love better because you're a Christian? This is part of what our passage in 1 Peter today is all about. But before we get there, there's something else we need to see. If you have your Bible, I hope you'll open it to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Last week, I encouraged us uh, for the next several weeks, once a week, to read through Peter's letter in one sitting. So as we're going through it on Sundays, I encourage you that you'll take it during the week to take 15 or 20 minutes to sit down and read it all the way through. And if you haven't done that yet... I hope you'll try it this week. Like I said, even if you're uh, not a quick reader or you're scared about not catching everything in it, don't don't worry about that. It's only going to take you 15 to 20 minutes and you don't have to catch everything. One thing you might notice if you do that is that Peter returns again and again to what God has done in the lives of those who believe in Jesus. Last week we heard that we have been ransomed by God. That through the life and death of Jesus, His own Son, God has bought us back from a life that was powerless in some way. A life that was useless, less than what we're made for. But now, He's freed us to live in the way we're intended as holy people, reflecting His image as renewed human beings. We have this new power to bear fruit and live in the way that we're made to live. God has ransomed us. Now, in today's passage, Peter gives us another image for what God has done. Christians are people who have been born again. He already spoke of this earlier in the letter in verse 3. The verse 3 is kind of a thesis statement for Peter's entire letter. So we've, you've heard it over and over again the last three weeks. You're going to hear it again this morning. According to God's great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
One thing I hope you'll see as we move through Peter's letter over the next few weeks is that the authors of Scripture give us something like a kaleidoscope of different images to, be, to describe what's happened to us through Jesus. We've been bought. That's one image. We've been born again. This is another image. We've been adopted as sons and daughters. We've been reconciled to God. These are just the few of the ways that they talk about our salvation. And we could go on with this. Each of them is an image that captures a different angle of God's beautiful work of salvation. In the same way that a professional photographer might switch out lenses on their camera and might try to catch the light from all these different angles, the authors of Scripture are trying to capture in all these different ways the abundance of what God has done in our salvation. Through Jesus, God has done much more in you and me than one single image can capture. And so they choose from many of them. You, listen carefully, you are God's beloved. He's redeemed you and He's given you new life. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? If you don't and you want to, I hope that you'll come talk to me or talk to another friend that you know uh, trusts in Jesus and believes in Him. Email me or something. This is essential to your well-being. It's fundamental to your understanding of your own identity that you believe and trust in this, that you are God's beloved, that He has chosen you to be His child. Now back to the image we have today of being born again. What does it mean that we're born again? In verse 3, Peter said that we're born again through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And in the passage that Leah just read to us in verses 22 through chapter 2, verse 3, Peter says we're born again through the imperishable seed of God's Word. Peter's saying that through the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, God has opened up the way to a new kind of life in the present. So when we hear this news that Jesus has conquered evil and death, that this new life is possible, we can look to the risen Christ and we can be born into a new way of life. We become transfixed, oriented by this new hope, this certain future that's broken in on an uncertain world. Many people... Some of you here have had these dramatic stories, experiences of being born again after hearing of Christ. It wasn't necessarily that you heard of Christ from, about Christ for the first time, but it was as if for the first time the news about Christ and the power of God's Spirit just collided inside of you and gave birth to this new reality. So I, I think of John's own testimony. John grew up in church. But all of a sudden, the message of Christ became new and real to him in a fresh way, in a way that continues on. As it says in this passage that God's word will never die. All things will pass away, but God's word doesn't pass away. What Peter is saying is that when this birth takes root in you, it won't die out. It won't pass away. And this is the same as it's been in John's life. I can think of Alex's testimony of the way that God became real to him in this sudden and dramatic way. 
This is the way that the new birth happens for some people. And honestly, I don't have a story like this. And so when I hear stories like this, I'm so encouraged by it. I'm in awe. It reminds me of God's power to intervene in history in these instantaneous ways and to suddenly alter the course of an entire life. And in doing that, God alters the course of history, doesn't He? Now, others of us, like myself, we don't have a dramatic story like this. We still have a story. We have a story of God over time bringing us into this deeper awareness of Himself. And that is no less miraculous. Look, every birth is miraculous, isn't it? When you see a child born, a new life come into the world, it's miraculous no matter what the process was to get there. And in the same way, every new birth, every Christian new birth, whether it's sudden and dramatic or whether it's slow, hard to discern exactly where it happened, regardless, they're all miraculous. So since... Evangeline's birth, we now have these three vastly different birth stories. And a lot of you could tell a similar story. So, so the very first, it was so slow. So slow. I, I, I could say that it was painful. It wasn't painful for me, I know. But it, it did seem as if there was no progress taking place hour after hour. And in reality, there was no progress that was taking place after hour after hour. Until suddenly, after many hours, something happened. And they said, it's time. And then within a few minutes, there was a baby there. The, the second time, it was slow but steady. If you had like a a multiple choice, like this is the kind of birth I want, not that it matters for me again, but this is the one I would pick. If there was any such thing as a textbook birth, this, this seemed like it. Slow, but steady. And the third one, Evangeline was almost born in our car. (laughs) If this happens again, we will be in the waiting room after the first contraction. We're not going to take this kind of chance. I've heard that with moms who have many children, they, when they meet a mom, a, a mom-to-be, they don't give them any advice because they've given up on the concept of a normal birth experience. This kind of variety, this is the exact same thing we can expect with stories of being born again. We're dealing with the God who created in this abundant variety. And the God who created each of us unique in our own way. Can we expect anything less than that our new birth stories will also be unique in some way? That some of us won't be able to identify the exact moment that, we, that it happened. Who, who of us can remember our own birth? We cannot. But that it happened. The birth stories are fun to tell. But how we're born isn't isn't nearly as important as the fact that we are born. And this is the way it is with being born again. Now, how do we know that we are born again? And this is a hard question to answer because it's a little bit like consciousness. So Jesus tells Nicodemus, don't marvel that I said to you that you have to be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. This is the way it is with those who are born of the Spirit. 
Being born again is a little bit like consciousness in this way. How do we know we're alive? We're here, right? The Scriptures describe these new desires that are growing up in us, desires to please God. They're not perfect, but they're undeniably there. We're showing up. We're wanting God to work. But there is one singular acid test that the Scriptures give so we know we're born again. This is it. Love. We love. Listen to another passage from the New Testament letter of 1 John. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. The Bible speaks with one voice on this issue. The basic fruit of being born again is love. So Peter says in verse 22, having purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. What is it about love that makes it so basic, so essential to being a Christian? Not to say that our beliefs are unimportant. That, that's not the case at all. But why didn't Jesus say people would know His followers by their beliefs and their doctrines rather than Him saying they will know you by your love for one another? I think the reason is because at the core of God is relationship. Love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God exists eternally in three, but in their will, the three are one. In their love, they are one. So at our own core, as people made in God's image, is this same longing for oneness, for relationship, in love. And if our beliefs don't flow from this oneness, if our beliefs are not formed and forged in love, our beliefs will even be distorted. This is why fundamental is love. This is where you get people, even whole churches, denominations even, who are rigidly moralistic, but void of kindness and generosity. This is why. Because love is fundamental. Because it is entirely possible to have right beliefs and right behavior without love. We're going to come back to this. Now, like I said at the very beginning, most people are for love in theory. Very few are voting against love. But what do we mean by love? What is Christian love? Peter gives us two qualities to love in verse 22. Love sincerely and love deeply. Some of your Bibles will say earnestly. Love one another earnestly. But I want to talk about these two qualities of love. Sincere and deep. So the word sincere means true. If you're sincere about something, it resonates deep within your being. This means our love has to be more than merely tolerance of a person. 
We have to genuinely love others. Our love has to be true. It has to correspond with what we're experiencing inside of us. How do we do this when if we really shared everything we feel about another person, it could be crushing to them? It's in this crucible of learning to love each other sincerely that all of us become more like Jesus. This is so important. It's in the crucible of learning to love each other sincerely that we all become more like Jesus. Because it could be that you having to learn how to love me is going to force you to learn to be gracious, right? It could be. That you're going to have to learn how to forgive. Or it could be that you learning how to love me forces you to learn how to be more truthful. Because there are things that I need to hear. And if you aren't courageous enough to tell me, I'll miss out. I'll miss out on something that I'm missing, some secret sin in me that I can't see on my own. So regardless of which it calls you to to do, whether learning to love me forces you to have to learn to be more gracious or it forces you to learn how to be more truthful, it could be both. Regardless, you're going to look more like Jesus by learning to love me. I promise you, you're going to have to learn to be more like Jesus to love me. We're going to have to learn to be more like Jesus to love each other. This is the crucible. This is where we learn to become Christians. When we learn to love sincerely. Sincere love will often be this tension between what we feel is love and what we feel is truth. So here's what we need to keep in mind as we try to strike the balance Not telling someone the truth can be a form of selfishness, not kindness. So if we withhold something from someone because we're afraid it's going to hurt them, that can be a form of selfishness on our part, not kindness toward them. Because we're more afraid of some damaged relationship with them than we are of them missing out on the truth. Shouldn't we be afraid? of them not discovering some way in which they could be closer with God, some way in which they could be more truly themselves if they begin to understand this this thing in them that they can't see. We end up willing to sacrifice them hearing the truth so that we can go on enjoying some comfort of a relationship as it is. Now, doing this takes lots of practice, it takes lots of prayer, and it takes lots of wisdom. Sometimes we do need to wait, and we don't need to say that truth. But sometimes we do. Now, one final thing here about the sincerity. If someone confronts you about something, if someone tells you what they see as true about you, even if it's painful, even if you think they're wrong, give thanks. If someone tells you something that they think is true, even if it's painful, even if it's wrong, tell them thank you. Here's why. We've become an entire culture 
afraid to say anything to each other that could be seen as confrontational or disagreeing. This isn't love. This is cowardice. And in the church, uh, being like Jesus has been mistaken to be niceness. Now, niceness and kindness are not the same thing. You see, kindness allows us to confront each other with truth, but in the same time being loving. Niceness is this really ethereal thing where we, we just don't want to hurt anybody in any time. But that's actually cowardice. Having people willing to confront us is a gift. So Christian love must be sincere. It must be truthful. Are you loving others sincerely? Are you loving others truthfully? Second, a second quality. So the first quality of this Christian love is sincerity. The second quality is that Christian love is deep. Christian love is deep. Love one another deeply, Peter says. And to love one another deeply means to be stretched by love. It means to love one another strenuously. This is an athletic word that Peter uses. And in athletics, you stretch yourself to your very limits, right? You drain yourself in exercise. But think about the point of this when you're exercising. You drain yourself so that you're stronger on the other side. Don't you? In draining yourself through exercise, you gain energy and ability. You gain strength. But the other way around, when we don't exercise, we lose ability. In this strange way, when we don't drain ourselves, we lose strength. And this is the same way that Christian love works. When we drain ourselves by learning to love each other, we allow ourselves to be stretched in loving each other. We gain strength. We grow in love. So when we put up with each other's quirks and each other's failures, and not only put up with them, but we love each other through them, we gain strength in love. We might become exhausted trying to love each other sometimes, but we keep coming back and eventually we find our endurance in love growing. We're getting better at love and we're looking more like the God who's revealed in Jesus who loved Peter past his pride and his failures. See, Christian love is earnest. It's deep. It doesn't give up easily. It forgives, but it doesn't hold grudges. It doesn't speak about others in anger. Nor does it speak about others in ways that intentionally put them down. Uh, there's one word that Peter uses in chapter 2 where he says, put off uh, slander. This, this idea that when you're having conversations with people and you're talking about someone else, it can be very easy to denigrate someone, to take these little jabs at someone subtly. And Peter's saying, do not put down anyone in any way. We have to find ways of speaking truthfully that are also full of love and compassion toward each other. Are you loving deeply? Are you loving earnestly? Are you giving up on people? Are you putting them down? Now lastly, 
Can just anyone love in these ways that Peter commands the people to love? Can, Can anyone do this? Or does it take something special? Does it take the strength of God? Can anyone love sincerely, truthfully, and deeply? The answer to this is no. Not just anyone can love sincerely, truthfully, and deeply. The kind of love that God demands is impossible apart from His own grace. We need to hear this. Apart from being born again, we cannot love the way God calls us to love. The reason is that love is learned from the kindness of God because God in His own kindness has loved us sincerely, truthfully, and deeply. You see, God confronts our sin. He refuses to accept or affirm our sin as if there can be this negotiation. God, I'm going to bring this along and I'm just going to assume you'll be okay with it. I want to keep this. This is not the way God loves. Instead, God peers into the depths of us. He confronts the darkest corners of our being and He calls us to account. He calls us to say, you need to admit that this is who you are. That there's darkness in you. And apart from me, there's no good in you. But this is my love that makes you beautiful and good. But God does look into those darkest places. He calls us to account and does forgive us and love us. He doesn't hold anything against us. Hear it again. You are His beloved. You. And as His beloved, He continues to deal with us, to call us away from the sin that strangles out life in us and to a way of life that is good, that is beautiful, that's proper to His image bearers. We are entirely incapable of loving others, each other, on our own. If we try, our loves will always be distorted. You see, on one extreme, we will merely tolerate each other. We'll never know a sincere love because we're afraid to speak truthfully and we don't know how to be genuine. We just don't know how to tell each other the truth. How we feel about ourselves, how we feel about each other. We just can't bear to do it. And so we'll tolerate each other. On another extreme, we'll be self-righteous moralists who look down on each other for their failures. We'll never know deep relationships with others because we don't know how to go to the depths of forgiveness that love demands. Because the depths of love demand forgiveness. But when we taste the goodness and the kindness of God, when we've been confronted by His love and forgiven at the same time, then we're able to love sincerely and deeply. So let me ask you, are you experiencing the love of God? Have you been born again? As Peter says it, are you tasting His goodness? And if you are, you will know how to love. And in the practice of love, you will experience the depths of what it means to be made in God's image and to experience the oneness that is at the heart 
of who you are. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.